Hello, and welcome to the Grove Church Podcast. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and we are so glad that you're joining us. Whether you are a member and you're just catching up on a sermon that you missed or you're someone who's brand new, we are really glad that you are joining us. And if you are new in some way, and I know that a lot of people will do that, will listen to sermons first before they visit, I want you to know that we would love to meet you at any point. You can join us live in our services on Sunday, 9 and 1030, or our streaming service at 1030. Either way, we would love to be able to get to know you. And regardless of why you are here uh, listening to this sermon today, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. Hey, if you are new, I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here, and really glad you're here. If you're uh, here in the building, you're joining us online. Either way, we're really glad that you are here and are worshiping with us today. We are in the third week of a five-week series we're doing the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've kind of mentioned, we've kind of mentioned this every week. It's kind of a weird book, and at times it can be a little bit depressing. And if, you've, if you're familiar with three-act plays or trilogies or whatever, it really is kind of that middle piece where it kind of can be the heaviest. And so we've got a little bit of that today, some really heavy things that the author here is going to talk to us about. So I just kind of prepare you for that. But I think even in the midst of kind of some of this heaviness, we're going to always be looking and seeing the glimmers of hope of the gospel. So we got Ecclesiastes here. It's kind of got a lot of different things on my mind. And I'm watching the news this week with kind of some of this stuff in mind. And uh, I mean, it, it seems a little early, but it's kind of been like this for a while. Even though it's July of 2023, we are, it seems like we are neck deep, right, in the, in the presidential uh, election. And I heard something this week that is uh, just, it's, it's, uh, I mean, like, it's a big deal. Like a huge, this is a huge deal, right? It turns out that in 2024, it is going to be the most important election of, of my lifetime, which, I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, I'm 51 years old, and here we are. We are having the most important election of my lifetime. So some of you are laughing, and some of you are new. You don't know why you're laughing. I've been around a long time, and I have had a lot of most important elections of my lifetime. And so either we are on a constant trajectory this way, they just keep getting more important, or... They're lying to us, right? Or they're just kind of making a big, they're, they're, they're making a thing about it. Because here's the deal. Here's the thing. Um, first time I uh, voted was 92 uh, when uh, Clinton became president. First and to this day only Arkansan to become president. I was in 92. And then in 94, I think, was the first time that I heard this idea. I had just gotten married and it was kind of, we've been married about six months. It was kind of, we'll call it the first adult election for me. Like a fully graduated guy. Like it was the first time I'd heard it. This is the most important election of our lifetime. Like, well, so the first time you're here, like, wow, it's kind of a big deal, right? Because Clinton was doing this, and because we got to make sure that we and stop and do this and keep this, and we got to we got to decide who we really are. Battle for the soul of the nation. Like, whoa, this is a big deal. And so, if that's election number one, this would be the 16th national election since then, including that one, right? I think maybe twice, in 98 and 2002, maybe they didn't say this, but like I believe it, every election since then, most important election of our lifetime. And after a while, you can just kind of start to get a little bit cynical about it. It's like, you start to think, maybe this thing is a game. Maybe it's a game. And I've had a couple of conversations over the last couple of weeks with two very, very different people. They are different races, Different political parties, different social, socioeconomic statuses, two very different people, two completely different walks of life, 
different political parties and different issues. One was an economic issue and one was a social issue. And they bring this up to me. I'm not going to talk about what it is or the specifics of it because it doesn't really matter for what I'm saying. They say, let's talk about what do you think about this piece of legislation that's being proposed around this thing? And I said, well, this, this issue that's, this is talking about, it seems like that there is a much deeper rooted societal issue that this is built on. And it seems like no one is really willing to identify what the real source of the problem is. Identify what is it, and let's do something about this. No one seems to want to do that. It seems like what they do want us to do is to analyze a couple of the systems and argue about the solution to the, to the symptom, but not really deal with the problem. I said it to both of them. And I said, it seems like that that's really what they want us to do. That they want us arguing, fighting with each other about small solutions to symptoms of really large problems. Seems like the whole thing is designed this way. And if you've been around here a while, it's not going to become any surprise to you for me that, that, you, that, you, that I think that. If you're new, that might be, oh, I never heard anybody talk like that, right? Um, so the reality of it is, you start talking like that, you might think, man, that dude's, that dude's cynical. Is that the right word? Is cynical the right word? Is pessimistic the right word? Is realistic the right word? And I think about these things where like, you really start thinking about some of the systems that exist in our world. And you take a really just kind of honest look, and not just, not just our political system, but just systems everywhere, just kind of the way the world is. When you take a step back and you look at it and you're like, I don't know about that. You know, and, and all of a sudden you, you, you kind of get labeled cynic, pessimist, downer. That's depressing. It's depressing to think like that. Well, is it depressing to be realistic about something? Because the real question is, is it right? Is it right? Is, is, it, is it right? Is it, if, even if it is right, is it wrong to notice? But the real question is, the real question, when we are faced with a system, a situation, a, a, a way the world is, and we perceive it or realize it to be negative, to be oppressive, to be hurtful, to be damaging in some way, and we realize it, the real question what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And so we have this whole book here in Ecclesiastes where this really wealthy and powerful man, Solomon, goes around on what seems like a whole series of social experiments of trying to figure out what the world really is and where and how do I really find meaning in this world? And we start to see, and we saw this last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He's like, some people think that the world is about pleasure and, getting, and, and, and just doing what you want and just enjoying life. So I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to deny myself anything, and I'm just going to go for it and say yes. And he had the resources to be able to do it. And he says at the end, he's like, the happiness was fleeting, and there was no real meaning to it. And so he's like, this idea that you can just happy yourself into real meaning into life, he says, he says it's, like, it's like striving after wind. It's, it's, it's pointless. Then we move to chapter 3. We're going to be primarily in chapter 4 today. But I just want to tell you a little bit about chapter 3. Chapter 3, you go to chapter 3, and we get a poem there that you may be familiar with because it is based on a song that I will, in fact, not be singing for you. 
but I could, by the birds, to everything, there's a season, turn, 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 a time to be born, a time to die. Again, still not going to sing it for you. The tune is in my head, and I'm almost singing it, but I'm not. And that's, it comes from this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where it's essentially saying it just seems like the way the world works is just a cycle. It just kind of it comes and goes, ups and downs, ins and outs. It's just kind of this repeating cycle. And then he goes, man, I look at all these people who are working. Like, what is the point of work? You work, you work, you work, you die. What is, what are you even, what are you even doing? And you're like, bro. He's like, it doesn't seem like there's any, and then it's kind of when he gets in there, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more at the end. He's kind of like, it just seems like we make our life about work and really it should just be, maybe you should just enjoy stuff. And, um, and, and then he continues on, and then you look at people, and they say, just look at death. And, and again, this is really just kind of next level kind of, kind of stuff. He's like, look at death. I look at people, and they die. What's that different than an animal? They live a life for a little while, and then they die. Same as an animal. What is really the difference? And you're like, man, settle. I mean, I mean uh, oof. It just, it just, it just, it gets, it gets real heavy. It gets real overwhelming. Where he just keeps saying, I just look at the way people are, what they do, what they focus on, and he just keeps coming back to this idea. It seems meaningless. It seems like it is people trying to catch wind. And he uses this phrase, under the sun. The way this world is and its system, it seems like it is impossible to find real meaning there. And we continue on to chapter 4. We're kind of, I can look at some more things that he's saying that he feels like he's observing as he's kind of looking at this system. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared, just, just, just be ready, be ready here. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Ugh. And then it gets worse. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And so we have, again, what feels like a very depressing analysis of kind of the way that the world is. And at his core, what he's saying is this, is that he looks around at the world and injustice exists. And injustice, it seems like injustice runs rampant in our world. Everywhere he looks, there's injustice. We've got people who have money, we've got people who have power, and we've got the oppressed. And the people who are oppressed, they have no comforter. There seems to be no meaning there. And, it is, and he says, it seems like it's just better to have not ever lived, to not ever experience, to not, just to not to have ever seen that than to be here and to see it. And it just, that, that, that it, feel, it feels to me, it feels overstated, doesn't it? But does it? Like, I, don't, I mean, it's, I, think that, I think this is, these are the questions we're supposed to ask as we analyze it. But let me tell you the question that I ask, which is one of the things that makes this book so weird the guy who wrote this is the wealthiest man alive at the time, one of the most powerful men alive at the time, and had just spent some time in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to pursue all the pleasure in the world. And it says that he is hiring slaves to build elaborate things for him. And you're like, and now you're going to look and say, um, 
Man, there's a lot of oppressing. There's a lot of oppressors in the world, and the people who are oppressed don't seem to have a come. Like, bro, what, how far do you have to go to figure that out? Look in the mirror. I didn't have to make it very far to figure this out. And it's just kind of weird that he can kind of take this point and like step outside of a system that he is clearly a part of. And he kind of when he, when he takes a step back and he says. This is bad. Like, like you want there to be. And again, it's not the, it's not, this is not his biography. And so we're not going to get that level of satisfaction. But you would like to hope that one of the results of this social experiment that he goes on is to recognize his own place in it. But what he sees, I mean, like, is just rampant injustice. And so here we are 2,000, 3,000 years later. What would he say if he saw it today? It would seem, back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're just kind of repeating a lot of the same things. And even if we decide, hey, let's just set aside the arguments that we like to have here in the U.S. about who is or is not oppressed and why they are or are not oppressed. I mean, there is slavery still existing all over the world. And there, there is extreme poverty that if you saw, it would blow your mind. In countries that have plenty of wealth and a ruling, elite, powerful, wealthy class of people. It exists everywhere. It continues to exist here where the people who have power do not want to share it and will oppress and hurt people when they get the opportunity. That is the system that we live in and it does not seem to be. In some ways, maybe it's getting better. In some ways, it's not. It's another thing that we like to fight about. But let's just just take a moment and not think about the arguments and the fights that we get drug into, but let's just kind of just take this again as the experiment that he has, that he's going through. You take a look at it. There's a lot of there's a lot of oppression, a lot of injustice in this world, and he continues, verse four. And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. There's some weird phraseology in there, but I think we kind of get to what he's talking about here. I think we'll agree with it. He's like, I look around, I see all the people who are just working so hard that have just made their life, have dedicated their life to their work. And it seems like everyone is driven out of this desire to this guy has more than me. I got to make sure I have more than this guy. I've got to make sure that I've got to be the best, that I have the most. And so I'm going to work myself and just constantly work and pursue and do all of these things driven out of an envy or jealousy. And so not only is, is injustice running rampant, we've got this, this epidemic of jealousy and jealousy as a motivating factor. He's like, it's, it, it's, it's meaningless. Jealousy is meaningless. And then he uses this imagery where it's like, we got these people, and they're like, they says they have specifically, fools fold their hands. Like, that guy's got more than me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard, and I'm going to show him, and I'm going to have more. And he's like, better, like if you're going to work, work with one hand, and with this hand, why don't you just take a, why don't you just take a beat? It's better to work with one hand and have tranquility and peace with the other one than to be like, 
to be like this. If anything, this is like, this, like I, I like this verse because I believe it is, is a, at least a small advocate for nap culture. How many, we got any nappers here in the room? You can be like, oh man, love a nap. Like a good solid 20, 30 minute power nap in the middle of the day. Oh man, you could be working. Yeah, I could. Or I could take 20, 30 minutes and give myself a minute. And the problem is what's going to happen over the next three hours is going to be better than the three and a half I would have been. And I had to get my little nap. I feel like sometimes I was born into the wrong culture. Because there's some nap cultures out there. Right? I'm, I'm 100% in. Like, well, you could be achieving more. You could be doing more. You could be earning more. You could be accomplishing more. Yeah, I could or I couldn't. What if I didn't? What if we didn't? What if we decide that we were going to make rest and peace and tranquility more a part of our life? And then we just, I just, I just got to slow down a little bit. And I'm going to do things like, I'm going to do things like, like come to church and be in a small group. I'm going to do things like taking a nap. I'm going to do things like I'm just going to go a little bit slower. I'm going to enjoy this life rather than spending my life both this, like this, working hard to prove something to somebody who may or may not know that you're here or care one bit that you're working hard. He says it's, it's meaningless, this, this envious workaholic drive that so many of us have that it's rooted in this jealousy of that somebody might have more than me. Verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So he's describing kind of, kind of, almost like a bit, a bit of a subset of that. You got these, you got some people who are just like, they're working so hard. And because they're working so hard, they don't really have time for anybody. They don't really have any friends. They don't have any family. They don't have any real brothers, people who are, who can be with them. Because I don't have time for that because I've got to keep going and so they just continue to work and then one day it says this person this hypothetical person goes and looks around it's like what am I even doing I'm working hard so I can do what with nobody and he's like that sort of thing where we live these lives of isolation and he continues on he describes it this way and you're to hear some verses here that might feel familiar to you that you've heard and in, in, in maybe in different contexts. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Again, some of those verses are kind of the verses you'll see a lot, right? They're the kind of things that you would put on an inspirational poster or coffee mug or whatever and, and, and have it to kind of talk about how important it is to have people around you. And he's like, we got, we got people who are out there, they're just working really hard and wake up one day like, I don't know why I'm doing it. And then he says, because here's the deal, there's going to come a time when life is going to punch you in the mouth, you're going to get hit hard by life. And now you're on the ground and you can't get up and you don't have anybody to help you get up. 
Or you're going to find yourself in a place where it is cold, where you're going to maybe literally, maybe, maybe metaphorically, where things are so cold that I cannot keep warm. I cannot regulate myself. I cannot be okay. But if I had somebody, I could. But we see people constantly living lives in isolation, working hard, accomplishing things, doing things. And then when life happens, they fall and there's no one there. They're, 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 uh, they're, they're able to just snap. They freeze to death. We see these things literally. We see them metaphorically. And so as he's kind of making this journey and kind of looking and kind of trying to evaluate what is going on, he sees that injustice is running rampant, that jealousy is meaningless, and that isolation is destructive. He looks around at this system, the way that this world is set up, the way that this world is designed, and he's like, there's just oppression and hurt and pain that is caused by this wealth and power gap that exists in the world. And we see people who are just driven, driven by jealousy, driven by envy, driven by, I, can't, I, got, I gotta have more than what my neighbor does. And they're striving and striving and striving and take no moment to enjoy what they have because they're not driven by enjoyment or how they, they're driven not by having, but by having more. And it's like, it's pointless. And then all these people, they end up completely and totally isolated. And when life happens, they're undone by it. Because they've got nobody there with them. Now I don't know what you think when you hear this. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you feel. But if I were to tell you, if I were just kind of put them out there, hey, there's a lot of there's oppression in the world. Living a life driven by envy of what somebody else has is pointless. And if you're by yourself, life's gonna get you at some point. I don't think. Any of us would disagree with any of those points. Even if we don't like hearing them, and certainly don't like hearing them all at once, and it's not the bit of encouragement that we necessarily want when we come to church. The reality is all of those things feel true. And if I were to talk about these things and and read these passages to you, and I were to tell you that this book was written by somebody who wrote it last month, you'd be like, makes sense. I can see why someone would think that right now. To me, the most fascinating part of this is this book was written 3,000 years ago. That's the thing that is most fascinating to me. He is describing a world system that is almost 3,000 years old, that 3,000 years later we can go, I don't like to think about it, but yeah, And kind of let's go back to kind of where we started. If all of that's true, well, well, then what? Well, let me tell you a little bit kind of how things kind of work behind the scenes in, in my life. I kind of have a rhythm that I have with, um, with, with when I preach. And so if I'm going to preach on a Sunday, really like the Friday, Saturday before, so like eight, nine days before, I like to think about, okay, I need to know what I'm thinking about when I'm preaching about that following Sunday because I want to spend the week kind of just thinking about 
the, the big idea because I'm always looking for examples in my life or in the world that I see around me. Examples of like, okay, these principles that we're, that we're getting from the Bible that are true, what are some really kind of tangible examples out there in the world that can kind of illustrate that this is true? And let me tell you, when this is the passage that you're thinking about for a week, it's like, I'm going to spend the, I'm going to spend my week just looking out in the world and seeing if any of this is true. Let me tell you, you're not having a great week. And you, and you, and you, and, and you, and this is not an exaggeration. Cause then where you find yourself after a full week of doing this, you find yourself at 7.30 on a Sunday morning at McDonald's by yourself looking at your notes and you cry a little bit. And that's where my heart was this morning. Because the reality of it is, it has been a week. It's been a week. Where people are getting hurt and hit by life in a way they didn't do anything wrong. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. And boom, you get a diagnosis from a doctor that you did not expect. That overwhelms and upends your entire life. Stories of people who are, who are talking to me about how to overcome so much pain and hurt and trauma from their past. People coming up to me confessing things that they have done. Self-inflicted wounds, but I want to be better, but I don't know how. And you see it everywhere you look. You don't have to go and watch the news to read and hear about a world that is unfair to people. Where something happens to them that they don't deserve. Where people who are living a life a certain way and they think that if I do this, I'll be happy and then I'm not. And then finally life just hits them and just wipes them out. You don't have to watch the news. All you have to do is open your eyes and look around. And, and, and if you look, this is exactly what you see. People striving because of envy. You'll see a, a injustice running rampant. You'll see people living in isolation. So what are we going to do about it? Because there is a fine line for so many of us between a realistic view of a broken world and a broken system and a surrender to hopelessness. Because here's what I want to tell you. It is very unlikely that there is anyone here in this room that when they look at the world and its brokenness and the systems that are designed to hurt us and just the, the, the randomness of life that it can be so hurtful and painful, it is unlikely that there is anybody here in this room that has experienced that and believes that. Maybe I experience, I can experience that. Who, who believes that the world is more broken than what I do. But I promise you this, I am not and will not surrender to hopelessness. Even if I have to take a few minutes awkwardly in a McDonald's by myself with my head down, I don't, I don't need any attention, cry, even if I need to take a second, I'm not going to surrender to hopelessness because behind every story that someone has shared with me in the last week, Behind every pain is the beauty and the joy that they shared the story. And that they said, I, I, want, I want better. 
I want different. I want God. I want him to be there. Because even though all of those things are true and we are describing a broken system, here is what we will do. Here's the commitment we will make. We will live above the system. We will live above that system. Because the thing that he always says, under the sun, it's meaningless. Under the sun, under the sun is meaningless. And we will talk about this every week. That may be absolutely true. That under the sun there is meaningless and hopelessness and pain and destruction and meaningless. But we do not live there. Even if God has placed us there, our hearts and our lives are with the one who created the sun. Who lives life above the sun. And what he has called us to do is to live a life different. A life full of hope and light beyond what this world's system is describing. And even in, even in these passages that can be filled and seem like they're filled with such despair, there's glimmers of what it is he's called us to do. He sees people living in isolation and how meaningless that is. And he's like, surround yourself with people, people who you know will have your back, people that you can talk to about your worst moments. And when you have your worst moments, when life hits you, you know that they've got you. You need people like that in your life. You see, don't live a life driven by envy. Live a life that allows you to work, to have what you need, and then enjoy what you have. Have a little tranquility built in with your labor. What if you just did that? And so he's talking about there's a solution to this jealousy. There's a solution to this isolation. And we work our way back up. We go up. And then there's the oppression in the world. And I find it very interesting that he gives little bits of solutions to, the, to the, those last two, but doesn't say anything in the first one. There's nothing that he says that says, and here's what you can do to rid the world of injustice. In these first two, these last two, he talks about how you can keep yourself from being infected. But in the world system, he doesn't mention anything that we can do to rid the world of injustice. Now, don't hear me saying more than what I'm saying. Of course, the Bible tells us that we should be people who are bringing hope and life to people who are hurting, who, who are oppressed. The entire book of Amos is dedicated to it. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's all throughout there. But in this book, he's talking about solutions to problems. And the reality of it is we could all work as hard as we wanted to. And this world tomorrow, the next day, the next day, it's going to be full of the same sort of oppression and division. Does that mean we don't fight? Does that mean that we don't bring hope and life and light to people who need it? Absolutely not. And some of the best stories that have been written talk about how hopeless it can feel at the darkest times and how incredible and overwhelming evil and death may be. And even though it may feel pointless to fight it, we fight because it is right. We cannot bring an end to world hunger, but I can feed someone that God brings into my path. I cannot end poverty in Northwest Arkansas, but I can bring school supplies for one kid to give him one little boost forward to help him. And to, for some people, he can just know that somewhere out there, there are people that believe in him, that believe in her. 
I cannot end the need for foster care and adoption in our world, but I can become a foster parent. I can support foster parents. I can, I can adopt one kid. I'll tell you this story. We have our precious little youngest daughter, Layla, who we, we adopted from foster care. We have called her historically. We did this a lot more when she was little. We called her our little starfish. And I don't know if you're familiar with this little parable that kind of exists out there in the world of all these starfish that get swept out onto the beach. And they're going to suffocate there if they don't get back in the water. There's thousands of them. And this little boy is walking down the beach, throwing them in one at a time. There's thousands of them. This one little kid. He's throwing them in there. And this cynical old man comes up to him and says, look at all these thousands of starfish. You can't get them all in there. You're not making any difference. Kid reaches down, grabs another starfish, throws it in. So it made a difference for that one. Made a difference for that one. I by no means think that what our family did in the time that we were a foster care or foster parents or when we adopted that we've changed the world. But you know what we did? We changed her world. And she changed our world. And bit by bit, more and more of us are grabbing our own starfish and throwing them back in. And we can make the lives in the different, we can make a difference in the lives of the people that God has brought to us by bringing hope and light to them. And we fight and we live above the system because it is the right thing to do and it is what Jesus Christ has called us to, to bring hope and light. He said he was the light of the world to bring hope and life to the world. The one who lives above the system to bring hope and life. And he says to you, you are now my light, a reflection of who I am to bring hope and life to a world and a system that if you look at it on its own, is depressing, but I don't look at it on its own. I look at, at the, the God who lives above it, who has reconciled me, who at my worst moment, at my most sinful moment, when I got hit in the mouth the hardest, put his hand up to me, sent his son Jesus to die for me, to give me life. And he says, and I want you to be a carrier of that life and that light to a world that needs it. I'm not going to be defined by this system. I'm not going to allow myself to be made hopeless by this system. I'm going to live on a different level. I'm going to live above it with Jesus Christ and bring hope and life. And we're going to say, we're not going to live in isolation. We're not going to be driven by envy. And we will be the comforters for the people in this world that need comfort. And so individually, as families, as groups, and as a church, this is who God has called us to be. The carriers of life and light to a dark and broken place that will never surrender to hopelessness, but will bring joy, life, hope, and peace. Let me pray. Thanks again for joining us on our sermon podcast. And you can learn more about us at thegrovechurch.org. And if you go to thegrovechurch.org slash connect, there's a form you could fill out. Just let us know that you've been listening. 
And if you want to dig deeper on some of these topics that we cover in our sermon podcast or just in other issues of dealing with culture or theology, those kinds of things, uh, you can check out our Cultivate podcast. It's on the same feed, um, however you found this particular podcast. So again, this is Charlie, the lead pastor at The Grove, and thank you so much for joining us.